Welcome to another episode of the Double Dupe Sports Podcast, episode 13 of season 5 and episode 95 overall here on the DDSP as we inch a little bit closer to milestone number 100. We are recording here on a Tuesday afternoon in College Station, Texas. I am your host, Tyler Dupnik. Please be joined once again, as always, by my co-host and twin brother, Austin Dupnik. Austin, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great, Tyler. I'm happy to be here with you once again. I'm happy to be here with you at a much better time than last week when we recorded. So it's really great to be here on a Tuesday, recording in the afternoon, getting the episode knocked out early in the week, which was expected based on what happened in the finals recently. So just really happy to be here right now. Excited for the content we have on this episode. And how are you doing this afternoon? Doing pretty good. Like you said, uh, it's better than, uh, well, as we were recording obviously earlier in the week uh, here on the first of the three days we typically record. But also compared to last week, we recorded really late. It's more normal time slot right now. So it's good to record and kind of get ready for what's going to be a really exciting uh, weekend of sports uh, moving forward. So uh, we're going to get into that content. But before we do that, thanks for listening as always. You can subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't already on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you guys listen to our podcast. I really appreciate it if you would do that if you haven't already. Uh, and you can follow us on social media. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, at tdup25. Yeah, and as always, you can follow me on Twitter at dupe underscore Austin and on Instagram at au underscore dupe10. So if you guys don't follow us on those handles yet, please do. Once again, we don't post any content on there, you know, normally throughout the course of the week, but we always post on those handles under the podcast is up and available to be listened to. So if you guys don't follow us yet on those handles, uh, please do that. Yep, absolutely. All right, now we are ready to go into the content of this episode. We'll start with the NBA as we have for a long time now. We are getting very close to ending the season, though, with the NBA Finals uh, almost at their conclusion. Golden State is currently leading the series three games to two. Uh, we will go back to last Friday so we can recap game four, because uh, last week, obviously, we were going to cover the first three games, talk about what happened at that point. The Celtics had a two-to-one lead uh, in the series, but since we were last recorded, two games have taken place, and the Warriors took both of those games, and now they have a commanding 3-2, or not commanding necessarily, but you know they're on the doorstep of another title. And so we'll go back to game four and see how they did it as they got home court advantage back with a win on the road against Boston. They took this one 107-97 to in game four to even up the series at two games apiece. And it was all about a second half where they outscored the Celtics by 15. Um, they outscored them by nine in the fourth quarter specifically to end up winning the game by 10. So obviously that was the, the decisive quarter. And uh, Steph Curry, it was a lot of question marks whether he was going to be able to play um, after he kind of banged himself up in that game three loss. Uh, but he was like, I'm going to play. Like, there's no way I'm not going to play in this game. I'm going I'm to be ready to go. And boy, did he ever play. He was outstanding in this game. Absolutely marvelous performance by Steph Curry. One of the best to ever do it. And uh, just absolutely outstanding. 43 points, 14 for 26 from the field, 7 of 14 on threes. The greatest shooter of all time, 50% from the three-point land, as I just mentioned, and obviously a little over 50% from the field. So he led the way with 43 points. Absolutely outstanding performance by Steph Curry when they really needed him to be outstanding, and he, he was able to come through in a big moment. They also got double figures from Klay Thompson, who had 18, Andrew Wiggins, who had 17, and Jordan Poole came off the bench and gave him 14. So those were the four key scores in this game. Steph Curry also had 10 rebounds in this game, so he pretty much did everything. Had a double-double. Uh, Andrew Wiggins led the team with 16 rebounds, and they also got uh, 11 rebounds off the bench from Kevon Looney. So the Warriors able to do enough. Again, they had a huge second half. When you look at the Celtics, it feels like they didn't do anything wrong necessarily. They just didn't do enough things right. Um, Jason Tatum was 50% from three-point land, had 23 points and 11 rebounds, a double-double, but he was 8 for 23 
from the field. So that's obviously not a very good and efficient shooting performance overall from Jason Tatum. Uh, Marcus Smart had 18 points, but he didn't really shoot that well either, making three of his nine three-point attempts and shooting below 50% from the field. Jason, uh, excuse me, Jalen Brown brought it though from the you know he's nine for 19 from the field. He had 21 points. So he had a number of guys in double figures. Derek went off also off the bench, gave him 16. So again, I feel like they had guys who came through and contributed, but they just weren't able to do enough. Uh, Robert Williams gave him 12 rebounds um, in the starting lineup, but again. They weren't sharp enough on defense in the second half. They weren't able to get enough shots in the second half. weren't able to score enough points. And at the end of the day, they just were outscored in the fourth quarter and the second half. And that's really where it all changed. They were able to do enough in the first half to kind of give themselves a nice lead, but it wasn't enough. The Warriors, all that championship DNA we've heard a lot about, they were to put together the rally in the second half and end up winning the game by double digits and bring it back home last night, which I know you'll talk about here in a moment. Yeah, it was definitely a huge game uh, for the Warriors. Obviously, not you know wanting to go down three to one and facing and would have to face elimination every other game if they wanted to win. And you know, it was a missed opportunity for the Celtics to have a chance to go up three games to one and give themselves a great opportunity to win the series. But you just have to give credit to Stephen Curry who went out there and played. You know, and had one of his best finals games of his career and was just outstanding. Like you said, coming into the game, we weren't sure if he was going to play, but at least there was some doubt immediately after Game Three, which he quickly you know put put aside and he came out there and just lit it up and had 43 points and was outstanding and then and as you said Andrew Wiggins was also really big in this game for the Warriors so just a huge win for Golden State when you look at the ne- at game five which happened last night I think compared to game four if you look the, at the two games on paper there are some similarities to it in some way uh, last night Golden State hosting game five of the NBA finals with the series tied at two games apiece and they're able to get the win by a final score of 104 to 94 so another 10 point victory for the Warriors as they've now won back to back games in this series and are on the brink of another NBA championship. Uh, in the first quarter, Golden State came out really good. Uh, they really stifled uh, Boston offensively. They outscored them by 11 points in the first quarter, 27-16 to 16 in that first frame. It's a little more tight in the second quarter. In the third quarter, it was uh, uh, we saw kind of a, a different feel, I guess, to this series because Celtics have uh, generally struggled in this uh, series in the third quarter. But in this game, they came out in the third quarter. They were down by 12 points uh, at halftime and then came out in the third quarter, outscored the Warriors by 11 points, really lit it up from downtown in that quarter where they had largely struggled from behind the arc in the game before that. And so we had a one-point game going into the fourth quarter, but in the fourth quarter, the Warriors found a way to dig deep and get the job done outscoring the Celtics by nine points in the final frame to win the game by 10 points, like I said. In this game, uh, the Warriors, it's amazing they were able to win because Stephen Curry really struggled in this game. He had just 16 points. He was 7 for 22 from the field. He did not make a three-pointer for the first time in a very long time. He was 0 for 10 from downtown in this game, which is really, or 0 for 9 in the game from downtown, which is really surprising. You know, I certainly, I think beforehand, if you would have told people that Curry was going to go 7 for 22 from the field and was not going to make a three-pointer, he'd probably think that Boston was going to win the game. You have to give a ton of credit to Andrew Wiggins, who came out there last night had a huge game for the Warriors. He's been so great in this series. 26 points and 13 rebounds for Wiggins. So another double-double for him in this series. He's been rebounding the ball extremely well for them in this series. He led them in scoring in this game and was obviously the most influential player for them. Uh, we also saw Clay Thompson have 21 points in this game. Uh, like I said, Curry struggled, but still had 16 points, had eight assists, so he chipped in in that regard. Uh, Gary Payton had 15 points. Uh, Gary Payton the second had 15 points for the Warriors, which is good for them. Uh, Jordan Poole, we, we know that he had been really good throughout the course of the postseason, but 
but hasn't done a lot in the NBA Finals. Didn't do a lot in this game either, but did have 14 points off the bench and had a huge uh, buzzer-beating three at the end of the third quarter that I think really kind of boosted their energy. You know, like I said, that was a tough third quarter for the Warriors. They were outscored by 11 points in that frame, but that three-pointer right at the end of the clock there, he got it off just in time, gave them a one-point lead going into the final quarter, kind of, you know, get kind of a jolt of energy to the crowd, and everybody was really fired up going into that final quarter. Maybe that was a good that shot kind of gave them some more momentum going into that final quarter. So really just a huge game for the Warriors, obviously. Draymond Green probably had his best game of the series too because he did a little bit of everything again in this one. Eight points, seven rebounds, six assists, was just more efficient for them and more of a more of an impactful player. As for the Celtics, I think Tyra was talking about game four. Like, they didn't play terrible necessarily in this game either. You know, on paper, like, you know, Jason Tatum has had one of his best games of this series and probably the best one, at least as far as efficiency. He had 27 points, shot 10 for 20 from the field, had 10 rebounds in this game as well. Uh, and then, you know, Robert Williams had 10 points, eight rebounds. Probably like to see him a little bit more. Uh, Marcus Smart had 20 points. Jalen Brown had 18 points, but really struggled uh, from the field. I think he was five for 18 from, from the field. And so wasn't very efficient, unfortunately. But did have nine rebounds, and then Al Horford chipped in a little bit too, had nine points and nine rebounds. So I think on paper they didn't play terrible at times, uh, but at the end of the day they just weren't able to do enough offensively. You know, watching the game at times, they just, you know, maybe were a little bit careless at times again off, you know, offensively, but at the same time you have to give the Warriors credit because their defense has been so good all season. It's been great here in the postseason, just really making the Celtics earn everything. The Celtics just weren't able to do enough in this game to get another road victory. You know, they were 7-0 and in the postseason after losing a game. This is the first time this entire playoff that they've lost back-to-back games. So you just have to give the credit to the Warriors for playing so well last night, defending home court. They've only lost one game at home this postseason. And now, you know, like I said, they're on the brink of another championship one game away. We'll have game six on Thursday night to see if the Warriors can get it done. But, of course, Boston will be back at home at the TD Garden. So they have every opportunity to win that game and make this series go to seven. And we'll see what happens. Yeah, you mentioned that they, uh, the Warriors have only lost one game at home in this postseason, and that one game was game one of the NBA Finals, of course, where we saw the Celtics going an epic fourth-quarter comeback. And without that, you know, miraculous, to some extent, comeback, because they were really not really playing that well up until that point, the Warriors had controlled the entire game until the fourth quarter. This series would be over already. So, you know, the Celtics have to dig deep, and they, like you said, they have home court advantage, which is good. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, Steph Curry didn't make a single three in that game five. Uh, he had a, an NBA record 233 straight games, regular season and post season of making at least one three in a game so pretty remarkably went over from behind the arc um especially after he had 43 in that game four uh performance but yeah, you can't say enough about uh, Andrew Wiggins and what he brought to the table. A lot of energy, led the team and scoring. Like you said, he was great last night for them. And they just have so many guys who can score. Um, and, or at least they have like somebody like a guy like that could just like you. Know, Andrew Wiggins hasn't been outstanding necessarily at times in his career, or even you know with the Warriors hasn't been you know maybe everything they would have wanted. Or you know in terms of like what his ceiling is, but I mean he just gives you 26 all of a sudden, 12 or 23 from the field in the NBA Finals and has one of his best games of his career. And that's certainly the kind of talent that he has. Every now and then he can bring that out, and that was huge for them last night to be able to get that performance from him and like you said rebound the basketball really well and so and then the last thing I'll say is like you know Jalen Brown didn't make a three last night either so that was kind of like an underlying kind of storyline you know Curry hasn't made a three Jalen Brown was over five from three-point range and didn't have uh, like you said the efficiency uh, the efficiency that he would have wanted to have and again they just weren't able to do enough because they didn't shoot it horribly necessarily and uh, again like, I didn't watch as so much of the game as you did I don't think but 
clearly it doesn't look like they did. You know, they were able to limit the Warriors to 22% from from behind the arc, and it wasn't enough to get the win, though. So pretty surprising that despite all the things that we just discussed, they weren't out where they ended up losing the game by double digits. Just a lot of credit to the Warriors and how they've been on this stage so many times. They just know how to win uh, when they really need to. And so we'll see if they can win one more and uh, get that fourth title with Curry and, and some of those other guys like Thompson and Green. And I think it'll be the fifth championship overall, I believe, for that franchise if they can get it done on Thursday night. But if they can't get it done, the Celtics find a way. We'll have a game seven on Sunday night back in the Bay Area, and we'll see how that one goes. So either way, we're going to get a chance to finally uh, next week to recap the NBA Finals completely, finish it up, put a bow on the season, and uh, pretty much uh, essentially outside the NBA draft, finish up our NBA content for what we've done here in Season 5 of the DDSP. So good stuff overall, though, for those last two games in the NBA Finals. A couple of wins for the Warriors, now the Celtics with their backs against the wall, trying to stave off elimination and keep their championship hopes alive. So... That's pretty much all we have for the NBA on this episode. We'll go ahead and, and move on now to MLB. It's pretty much, I mean, that's kind of what we expected, obviously, early on when the playoffs were a bunch of games to recap. Now we're down to the, just a couple of games, and so we covered it as well, as well as we could. Not much more to say. We don't want to do anything more than we have to, so we'll move on to our MLB News and Notes, uh, news and notes segment, uh, segment. Rather, geez, News and Notes segment. Uh, last week, of course, we did our whole standings breakdown, our stats leaders, and that was the biggest reason why the episode took so long because that was a big chunk of content that we wanted to do right there two months in the season obviously not gonna do that this time and we won't do that again for a couple of episodes likely until the all-star break so we're kind of back to our normal mlb content just news and notes and so we go back to thursday june 9th you know that was we recorded last thursday but we didn't have all of our notes set up for that day and so we're going to talk about anything last thursday until this episode so that's where we'll go back to from last week and uh, we'll get it started with uh, just a really quick one here. I don't you know. We didn't have to put this one on here, but it was on quick pitch. And uh, DJ LeMay, who made his 100th career home run for the Yankees in, uh, in that game against the Twins. I threw it on there because it's somewhat of a notable, you know, get to triple digits. And LeMay, who's been a guy who, you know, he played for Colorado for a number of years. He's been an all-star before, I believe. Um, he's been in New York for a little while now. And I feel like he's played for a long time. And so not a home run hitter, obviously, but good for him getting to that 100th career home run. He's a, he's a good player. And obviously, he's been a really good player for them uh, since whenever since they got him a couple of years ago. Uh, the Twins teed off to start that game against the Yankees, though. This was pretty remarkable. Garrett Cole was on the mound in this game for the Yankees, and um, the Twins just got off to an outstanding start. Luis Arias hit a solo home run, and then Byron Buxton was having an outstanding season. He hit a solo home run. Then Carlos Correa capped it off with a solo shot, and back to back to back to start the game against Garrett Cole. I believe I have a stat to build on that. Yeah, so here it is. Uh, Minnesota, obviously, like I said, they, so they had three consecutive home runs to start the game. Uh, that was the seventh instance in the modern era, the first since Arizona in 2009. And uh, against Garrett Cole, no less, not just one of the best pitchers in baseball. Yeah, that was pretty remarkable by the Twins, certainly. You know, they had a great series against the Yankees hitting-wise. You know, they actually lost the series two games to one, but they did some good things against some good pitchers, including Garrett Cole, and it was pretty amazing they were able to do that against him, considering that he's obviously one of the best pitchers in baseball and has been really effective this year as the ace of that staff. And so it was really just an incredible feat by, you know, Arias and Buxton and Correa to do that. You know, it sucks they couldn't win the game, though, you know, so but at the same time, they lost, but they can still look back on that, and that was a really cool achievement, something that we haven't seen in a very long time. So definitely noteworthy. Yeah, and Garrett Cole, that was his career high. Five home runs allowed in the entire game. He only had six total home runs allowed in his first 11 starts of the season. So pretty remarkable stuff uh, in that game. Uh, next year, we have a little note. It's kind of a two-note a two note, uh, P, or two-part note, actually. Uh, but Rob Thompson, of course, the new interim manager with the Phillies, just kept on winning last Thursday. It was a dominant performance by the Phillies. Aaron Nola on the mound. They beat the Brewers, I think, 8 nothing or something like that. It was just an easy game for him. It made it look easy, at least. And that was, uh, you know, for him, longest win streaks to begin a, to begin a managerial career over the last 
last 60 seasons. Uh, that put him into a tie uh, for third with the six in a row uh, with the, you know four other managers. And then you know we're gonna I'm gonna mention that here again in a moment. So I'll leave it at that. Um, but uh, it was actually one more note. So yeah, it was an eight-game winning streak uh, overall for the Phillies. And so he was 7-0 as the interim manager at this point. Uh, he's the first manager to win his first seven games on a new team since Felipe Alou in 2003 with the Giants. He was the first manager to win first seven career games since Joe M. Morgan in 1988 with the Red Sox. So pretty remarkable stuff. Just you know, off to a great start, obviously. And again, I'm going to mention that here in a moment. Might as well just mention it again because we're going to go right to Friday, June 10th. And a little out of order, but I might as well mention it right now that the winning streak did continue. And that actually might have been the next part of it uh, was probably that one right there. So, yeah, since it was six and six. Yeah, so that was actually the part from Friday. So now I'll let you talk about this more. Yeah, definitely. I think you got the idea there. It's just certainly an amazing job so far by Thompson, you know, as the interim manager for them. And you just, you know, I don't know. He obviously is having some sort of impact. At the same time, they may just, maybe they're just playing well all of a sudden, you know. But certainly I have to give him credit being the head man there now. And, you know, maybe just a different voice in the building now, a different voice in the clubhouse, just kind of, uh, you know, just a different feel. And they're playing really well right now on both ends of the of, of the uh, game. You know, they're hitting well, finally, you know, for the most part, because some consistency offensively. They've struggled in that regard this year, and their pitching's been really good, especially their bullpen, which has been really, you know, a, a struggle at times this year, really been a weakness. But lately they've been good. They haven't been blowing uh, any saves, really. Canable's been solid, and overall their, their bullpen's been doing well. So just overall they've just been playing better as a group, and uh, he's, been, he's been a big part of that, obviously. Yeah, so that first part of the note that I mentioned was when they won six in a row. And then that second part that I mentioned, now he's 7-0 as interim manager. That was when they beat the Diamondbacks on Friday night and made it, you know, an eight-game winning streak overall, but seven consecutive wins for him. Which that means that he went into a tie for second with Jeff Torberg as the only managers to begin their career with seven straight wins. But, of course, and then that later it was turned, turned into eight after they won on Saturday, but then it was snapped at eight consecutive wins when they lost on Sunday. So that's all we really have on Rob Thompson with the Phillies and kind of the career, that he, the, the, the managerial career, to uh, the start to his managerial career that he had there with the Phillies and again this is only the beginning the Phillies are right around 500 now again they might be a little over 500 and they're on the right track again and so we'll see if they can keep playing as well as they have been over this stretch since they moved on to him to lead the way uh staying with Friday June 10th the Cubs and the Yankees man they played a really weird game on Friday night um and they went they, you know they had some absolutely putrid effort with runners in scoring position uh they were actually a combined 0 for 36 with runners in scoring position through the first 12 and a half innings uh which was the worst combined the last 40 seasons with a minimum of 30 at-bats. This game went in extra innings. And, of course, with the extra innings being the way they are now with the ghost runner at second, every at-bat you get is with a runner in scoring position. So uh, if you're not going to get the job done, it's just going to keep on adding up and getting worse. It was a low-scoring game. The Yankees ended up winning on a walk-off RBI single, a pinch hit uh, RBI single by Jose Trevino, I think that's the bottom of the 13th. And so, you know, uh, it was a two to one win for the Yankees. It was a low scoring game where none, the offense just couldn't, it was, which was weird. I thought, you know, we'd see more offense. We definitely did over the weekend from the Yankees, but that was a low scoring game. And the Yankees finally able to get the win, but it's just kind of interesting that the, the state of baseball right now is that I don't think there was even a sacrifice attempt. Maybe there was, I wasn't watching the game, but when I looked at the, the box score, the play by play afterwards, I don't think anybody ever sacrificed bunt, try to get the man to third, get him over, get him in. It's just, that's just not what we see in baseball nowadays. And it was just really kind of pathetic there in extra innings. Yeah, like you said, because of the way the extra innings work with that ghost runner on second when the inning starts, you just get automatically like at least, you know, three. Uh, or at most, you know, three uh, at bats, the runners in scoring position, and so that or just at kept, least, yeah, at least three at bats, yeah, maybe at least more, three, yeah. maybe more, well, yeah, well, yeah, it just depends. I mean, it could be more or less depending on how if you won the game, but nobody ever did for a long time. So they were just continually having three each, if not more, in a single inning, and nobody could come through and make it happen. And so that's why that that number skyrocketed, and we had that huge, you know, number of not coming through with a runner in scoring position. And so it was just kind of a weird game because I know I kept, you know, I'm keeping up with scores throughout the course of the night, going back every once in a while, and that game just never. 
seemed to end. It was like, okay, this game is still happening. It's still one to one and they just can't get these guys in. It's amazing. You know, that you don't see a lot of games go that deep anymore either because the new rule is supposed to make the games, you know, hopefully not last as long. But then like you said, nobody seemed to want to win. I mean, nobody wanted to put a sacrifice button down, get that guy over, get him in. And it's just like, it would have been super easy for, not super easy, but I know it's easier said than done, but I think these guys could have made it happen. The team just didn't put forth enough of an effort to try to get that guy across. And maybe if they would have, the game would have ended sooner. But at the end of the day, it was a wild game, and we got a cool stat from it. Yeah, and you wonder how much of it's a lack of effort or just they don't have a lot of confidence they can do it anymore. Maybe they just don't practice it enough. You know, they're just getting bunts down and sacrificing. And we see it a little bit, but those two teams were not, uh, didn't want to do it apparently. And they weren't able to execute the way they wanted to. And it lasted a while because of that. So last note on Friday night, Joe Musgrove on the bump for the Padres and just continue his outstanding start to the season. Uh, he's now had 11 straight starts to, of the, you know, 11 consecutive starts um, to begin the season with six plus innings pitch and two earned runs or fewer allowed. Uh, that's second most to begin a season since 1913 is only one shy of tying Ubaldo Jimenez who had 12 consecutive starts of six or more innings and two runs two earned runs or fewer to begin a season back in 2010 so uh, really remarkable stuff from Joe Musgrove so far I think he's right there with Sandy Alcantara in terms of the NL Cy Young candidates leading the way right now with the kind of season he's had he makes another start on Thursday afternoon against Chicago I believe the Cubs and so he's got a decent chance I think to get to 12 and keep that streak going he's just been absolutely outstanding this year and uh I have my fantasy team, so I've really enjoyed having Joe Musgrove do what he's done so far this season. Moving over to Saturday, June 11th now, we go back to the NL East with some of those winning streaks. So we know we talked about the Phillies and how many games they won in a row. They won nine straight before they eventually lost on Sunday. But uh, at that point, they had won nine consecutive when they beat the Diamondbacks on Saturday. The Braves had won 10 games in a row after they had won on Saturday over the Pirates. Uh, excuse me, I just totally lost my hair right there. <laughs> the, uh, the, the Braves beat the Pirates on Saturday, and that was their 10th consecutive win. So uh, among teams in the same division to each have winning streaks of nine or more games, it's only the third instance. It's only the third time that's ever happened. Uh, so, of course, this is the NL East. This was happened in June of 2022. The Braves 10 games, the Phillies 9 games. Only two other times, the NL Central from August to September of 2004 when the Astros won nine games back when they were in the National League, and the Cardinals had won nine games in a row. And then the AL East way back in June of 1970 when the Brewers were in the American League and had won 10 games in a row and the Red Sox had won nine games in a row. So pretty crazy stat. Both those NL East teams on a run of winning nine consecutive games or more and uh, only two other times ever happened. Those teams are in different leagues now. So pretty remarkable stuff. Um, next, we have uh, Swarmer gives up the long ball. That's what I put. So um, Matt Swarmer, a pitcher for the Cubs, really young pitcher, has kind of some talent, I think, to some extent. He had a couple of nice starts to his career and a little bit more of a different arm angle, so it gives you a different look on the mound. But he was pitching against the Yankees on Saturday at Yankee Stadium, so pretty great opportunity for a young guy to go into Yankee Stadium and, and make a start there early in his career, but it did not go well for Swarmer. Uh, Aaron Judge touched him up for a leadoff homer, and that was only the first of what ended up being six home runs that he gave up in the game, which ties in what we record for most home runs given up in a single game. Um, tough stuff for Matt Swarmer. And now all six of them were solo home runs, so at least the earned run average could have been worse if the guys would have been on base. It's always better to give up solo home runs than, than, than when they're on base, when they got guys on base. But, I mean, when it's six of them, that doesn't really help. They ended up losing pretty badly, and then he got even worse on Sunday, which we're going to touch on in a moment. With another note, uh, Jared Walsh hit for the cycle on Saturday night uh, for the Los Angeles Angels. It was their first cycle since Shohei Otani uh, hit for the cycle back in 2019 against the Rays in Tampa. This was at home, so uh, they got to celebrate there at the Big A with Jared Walsh hitting for the cycle. Um, 
And this was a kind of another one of those late, it kind, of, kind of like the Eduardo Escobar cycle we had a little while, just just last week, another kind of uh, late surge to get there. He had a home run in the eighth inning, I believe, and then had the triple in the ninth or something very similar, uh, or at least it was somewhere late in the game. It might have been the seventh, actually, because they won the game, so it wasn't It was the home run in the seventh inning, I think, and then he had a triple in the eighth inning on a, a base hit to center that ended up getting past the diving center fielder and going all the way to the wall and so ended up being kind of an easy triple for Walsh, and that's kind of how it has to go. Again, I think we talked about the last week when we saw the Escobar trip, or when he got, when he hit for the cycle, the triple is always the hardest one to get because you kind of have to get lucky, get to hit it in the right spot, or someone has to lay out and miss it. And it's not an error because he didn't touch it. It wasn't. It was just a great effort, but it just didn't work out. Um, and that's kind of what you have to have to make it happen. And, and Jared Walsh able to get it done. Yeah, definitely a great moment there for Jared Walsh and the Angels getting that cycle. And like you said, it was uh, one of those ones where it kind of you know came late. I don't think he got a hit in his first at bat. Uh, thankfully, he had he was able to get five at bats in the game. And then you know I think he had like a single and then a double after that. And so then, but even then, going into his last couple at bats, you're not really looking at him thinking he's probably going to get a cycle. Normally, when you look at a guy and you think he's going to get the cycle, maybe he got a home run early and a triple early or something like that. But he actually got the two easier ones out at first, and then he hit the home run. So all of a sudden, okay, you're on cycle watch, but it's going to take a triple. So it's going to be hard to make that happen especially for him. And then, you know, it's a sharp bar, uh, sharp line drive to center field. Like you said, the center fielder dove could make the catch, goes to the wall, opens the door for Walsh to get to third and have the, and, you know, get this cycle for the first time in his career. And the first one for the Angels since 2019. And the third one we've had this season in MLB and all of the cycles have come with the final hit being the triple. So it's kind of funny because I think it's human nature to think that when a guy gets a triple, maybe early in the game, you're thinking, okay, you could, you could get a cycle, you know, at this rate, if things go right, especially if a guy gets a home run and a triple early on. But those ones have not been the case this year so far. I think we've had some guys who have been able to get those first ones out of the way, the hard ones out of the way early, but haven't been able to come through later on. And this season we've seen, you know, three guys get the cycle and their very last, you know, hit had to be the triple. So it was kind of, it just came into that, came into that last at bat. Didn't think they had a great chance to do it because they had to get the triple and they were able to make it happen. So it's uh, pretty amazing for Walsh to join Yelich uh, with the Brewers and of course Escobar with the Mets. Yeah, pretty remarkable because again, you, you know, you have to get a triple and like you can't really try to hit a triple and you have to hope that it ends up happening but at least they've given themselves an opportunity and then they actually got it done so pretty cool stuff there we've seen three cycles now this year and two in the last couple of weeks so we'll see if that continues a uh, trend moving forward last note from Saturday of last week Christopher Morell uh, who was recently called for the big leagues for the Cubs had reached base 22 consecutive games which was the longest start to a career since 2003 but he uh, was held uh, you know he wasn't able to get on base on Saturday though but we wanted to make sure we recognize that yeah, definitely. Really a great achievement by Morell, who I picked up in fantasy recently. Uh, not, I haven't, I didn't have him the entire time he's had this on-base streak going on because he played a handful of games before I felt like I would give him a chance. Uh, but yeah, it's the guy who homered in his first ever at-bat with the Cubs after getting called up with them. You know, I guess it was back in May. He had a home run in his first at-bat. I think it was a pinch hit home run. And then, you know, he, he follows that up with, you know, you know, getting an opportunity to play seemingly every day now and leading off for them. And he gets on base for 22 games in a row. So he's just been doing great things uh, for the Cubs who, you know, they're not a good team this year. As we as we expected, they're not very good. You know, they're almost last in the NL Central uh, right now, and they've really struggled lately, like a seven-game losing streak. So they've had a tough run as of late, but certainly for a team like that that's rebuilding or looking for some younger players to come in and, and hopefully make an impact and give you something to get excited about. He's a young guy who recently got called up and you know hasn't really been a great you know prospect, I don't think, throughout their, throughout in their farm system, but has come up here and taken advantage of that opportunity and has played really well and is having fun out there. You know, really seems friendly, and uh, we've seen the past couple of games where he's come up, you know, first at bat of the game, you know, giving a lot, you know, 
you know, get a nod to the pitcher and stuff like that. So he just takes out there just having a good time, enjoying the game, having fun, and playing really well for the Cubs. Even though they're not doing very well, he's contributing, and it's a good sign for Cubs fans. Yeah, like you said, I, I don't know if you said it, but, you know, I spent a lot of time in the minor leagues, right? And so it seems like a lot, of, a lot of respect for the game and the opportunity that he's been given here to lead off for the Cubs on a, on a daily basis. And so uh, definitely root for that guy, and we'll see if he can continue to, uh, you know, work on that and continue to keep that on-base percentage at a good level and uh, continue to help the Cubs despite their struggles. Uh, moving on to Sunday, June 12, a couple of notes from Sunday. We saw Kyle Higashioka make history in an odd way. Uh, so this was a game that was an absolute blowout um, really early on. I mean, they got, the Yankees and the Cubs got out of hand. The Yankees ended up winning the game 18-4, to but it was in the eighth inning when Frank Schwindel, the Cubs' first baseman, uh, was actually uh, as a position player pitching there late in the game. Uh, and he just lobbed one up at 35.1 miles per hour. And Kyle Higashioka, the catcher for the Yankees, hit it out of the ballpark. Uh, and that was the um, that marked the slowest pitch ever tracked by StatCast to be hit for a home run. So as you can imagine, a pitch that was just floated at 35 miles per hour, Higashioka hits it out to left. Uh, definitely, definitely a unique piece of history to be made um, there in New York in a blowout game late. Uh, the Braves had their win streak go to 11 straight games have a little bit of a note on this one. So of course, the Braves won the World Series last year, and so they joined a rare club of uh, defending World Series champions to have an 11-plus game winning streak the following season. Um, the last five instances that's happened, uh, the 2018 Astros, you know, my Astros, obviously, I remember that 12-game winning streak. That was a good time. That was right around this time as well, right around June. Uh, the 1971 Orioles did it. They had 11 games in a row. The Astros ended up losing the ALCS that year. The Orioles lost the World Series that season. And then the other two instances are the Yankees back in 53 and 54. Uh, the Yankees actually won 18 games in a row uh, back in 1953. They didn't went on to win the World Series that year, so they repeated in the 1954. Uh, they had won 13 games in a row, but it looks like they missed the postseason actually that year. So, and we'll see what happens to the Braves. They're rolling right now, though. They won 11 in a row on Sunday night, swept the Pirates, and they actually kept their win streak going into yesterday as they beat the Nationals. So their win streak now is at 12 consecutive games. And so, as we, you know, that's, I don't really have a note for that, obviously, but just it's worth noting that they have a 12 game winning streak right now, which is is that Mike? Is that the longest? Current is not the longest streak of the season. Maybe I think it seems like it probably w- it probably is. Yeah, I think I think it is. I'm pretty sure that I saw uh, last night. I think I got a notification from MLB that the MLB app that I think it is the longest one of the season so far. Uh, certainly, they've been on a roll lately, playing really well, and you know, not playing you know great teams necessarily over this uh, over this winning streak, but you know, playing some solid teams, and it's that they, they, they certainly should be able to beat still. And uh, you know, you still have to give them credit, even though they haven't played like the, the top the top competition. You know, playing the A's, that's a, those were easy wins for them. The Pirates, kind of the same way, but at the same time, even bad teams can win every once in a while you know and obviously it's hard to like rack up consecutive wins sometimes in baseball uh, but they've been able to go out there and just continue to rattle off win after win finding different ways to win sometimes it's been really good pitching on a particular night sometimes their offense has gone out there and scored a ton of runs so I think they've just been playing really well together their bullpen starting to look really sharp as of late I think like they were last year and so this is a team that you know won the World Series last year obviously we know that and we both had them winning this division this year they haven't been in the lead I don't know if they've led the division at all this year because the Mets have been in first place seemingly the whole year but the, and the Braves have you know they were under 500 for a long time too really struggling but eventually they finally were able to get over that that hill got to 500 now they're well above 500 after this huge winning streak and they're not that far behind the Mets and so the Mets you know they're they were sitting comfortable for a while but you know there's still a long ways to go so the Braves are kind of catching them now and it's going to be exciting going down the stretch because the Braves are as we move into the summer here obviously still have a long ways to go but the Braves playing better now certainly it feels like the division race is going to continue to heat up with the Braves and Phillies you know making char- a charge towards the Mets we're going to have to keep on winning if they want to win the division. 
I'll even throw my Marlins in there too in terms of the NL East. You know, we had a five-game winning streak there for a moment. Took two or three against my Astros, which is a really weird series to be a part of. I'm glad it's over. I definitely was ambivalent. I kind of just, I, yeah, it was just, it was just definitely, you know, a unique experience having them play each other, which was cool, but also kind of like I didn't get to get too excited about anything. And now I'm glad that that series is in the books. But uh, the Marlins had won five straight before they lost the series finale and getting close to 500. Lost a tough one last night, but uh, with positive run differentials we talked about last week. So even the Marlins are kind of hanging around, and we have a bunch of games coming up against them. We haven't played them yet this season, so if we can win against the top two in the division, that'll obviously help us, hurt them, and that'll even that'll make things even more tight atop the uh, NL East. And so, like you said, a lot of season left, and definitely shipping up to be one of, one of the more exciting division races uh, in baseball. And so, last couple of notes here. Last night, this is just un- un- unbelievable, but Hector Gomez, uh, I beg your pardon, I, I, my phone had an email go off. I don't know why it's not on silent. I apologize for that, but Hector Gomez with uh, ESPN at HGomez27 on Twitter said, somehow, I don't know how he found this stat, but then you know, Bleacher Report, uh, BR Walkoff, uh, you know, retweeted it or quote tweeted it rather, and I got, you know, I was able to get the notification about it. But uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hit a home run last night, um, and this is really kind of not cherry picked, but it's very specific. But he has 87 home runs now in his career in his first 403 career MLB games with an on base percentage of 363. And somehow uh, his dad, of course, Vladimir Guerrero Sr., through his first 403 MLB career games, also had 87 home runs and an on-base percentage of 363. So you really can't make this stuff up. I don't even know how they found this stat or how it's even possible that they had the same exact on-base percentage and number of home runs in their first 403 career MLB games. But like father, like son, in the greatest way. Yeah, definitely. I was thinking the same thing, like father, like son. And of course, Vladimir Guerrero Sr. is a Hall of Famer, was so great for many years back in the day, and now juniors in the league now doing great things. Of course, we know that he, you know, had such an amazing season last year, you know, could have won the MVP award and, and would have won if uh, there wasn't a guy named Shohei Otani who did what he did last year. And then obviously this year, you know, we came, you know, you had him winning the MVP award this year, high expectations once again, because of how good he was last year. Hasn't been as good this year, but I think that's just because of how good he was last year. Set the bar really high for himself. There's some regression this year. He hasn't been as uh, electric, but he still had some really good moments this year. Still been really effective for the Blue Jays, who, whose offense has really been rolling lately, and it's great to see for them. And and that was just a really wild stat that is uh, pretty amazing. And just kind of like, I don't know how that guy found the stat, like you said. Is he keeping up with that? And, you know, every single time that he plays a game. I mean, I don't even know how you would think to find that stat, but it's a pretty wild one for sure. Yeah, definitely. And then last week we have to uh, players of the week from last week. I almost forgot to put that on there. So players of the week um, from from this past week in MLB. So um, we saw Byron Buxton of the Minnesota Twins uh, when American League Player of the Week presented by Chevrolet had five home runs and OPS just over 1,500. Also scored eight runs. He was outstanding for the Twins. Their offense, we, you know, we know is very powerful and he's a big part of that. And we just hope they continues to stay healthy because he's been so fun to watch this year. Had a couple of multi-homer games and, and, and just absolutely outstanding. And then uh, as for the National League Player of the Week, it was Hunter Green for your Cincinnati Reds who had 12 innings pitched, a sub-1 ERA with 15 strikeouts. He was the National League Player of the Week and uh, definitely the, I would say definitely the first of his career because, I mean, obviously it's, he's a rookie and so first career Player of the Week for Hunter Green. Not sure about how many it's been for Byron Buxton, but the, both those guys, big weeks and uh, good to see. Yeah, definitely huge stuff for Byron Bucks, who's been playing, you know, has has been, he started off really great in April, didn't do as well in May, but he's kind of getting things going here again in June for the Twins, who were still in first place. And then for Hunter Green, obviously great to see uh, for me as a Reds fan, just really excited for him. You know, hopefully it's the first of many Player of the Week awards as he is still so young and it's just obviously his rookie season, he's only 22 years old. And we've talked about him on the podcast a number of times already. And you know, obviously he had a really tough stretch there for a little while earlier in the season, like, you know, where he's just, you know, he's still young, so he's learning 
playing, and I think he's made some incredible adjustments over his last six or seven starts. Been really a lot more effective, been better about keeping the ball in the yard because he had a ton of home runs early in the season, but he's made the proper adjustments. And, you know, like I said, he's been just pitching really well. Last week had that great start against the Diamondbacks on Monday and then followed it up with a, a quality, with a good start against the Cardinals on Saturday. And so, you know, he put it all together, and those were his stats last week, like you said. And thankfully, you know, he's recognized for that as the NL player of the week. So, really excited for him, and uh, just hoping he can keep it going here uh, during his rookie season. Yeah, he's definitely been, you know, we talked about last week, kind of shaping up to be, you know, find some consistency, which is good to see. And uh, actually, one more note that I mentioned, but I was, I was going to say real fast uh, Hector Gomez, who I mentioned on that last note, not works with ESPN, he's just an MLB insider, so that's my bad, but still a crazy stat that he found, and uh, Bleacher Report shouting him out. I'm glad to be able to hear about that. And then there was one stat that I actually passed up earlier with the uh, one more thing I want to mention about Joe Musgrove that I forgot that I took a screenshot, but stats by stats, which recognized on Twitter last week for something they brought up. Those guys are obviously elite with this stuff as well, but at stats by stats on Twitter said that Joe Musgrove is the only MLB pitcher uh, to go 7-0 and or better with an ERA of 1.50 or lower and 70 plus strikeouts over his first 11 appearances of a season um, ever. Uh, so since, you know, ERA became an official stat in 1913. So 7-0, I think his record is exactly 7-0 right now. His ERA um, is sub-150 or maybe right around that area. And 70 plus strikeouts, 11, his first 11 appearances. Again, we talked about what he's done so far this season. Just absolutely consistent throughout the entire year. Hasn't had any bad starts yet, obviously, based on those stats. So really remarkable stuff. And we'll see if he can keep it going uh, at Wrigley Field on Thursday afternoon. So that rounds out our MLB news and notes uh, from this past week around the diamond, or at least the last you know, five days or so. Obviously, we recorded last Thursday. We kind of had to pick up where we left off, but uh, certainly we had a, a healthy amount of notes there to talk about, and uh, you know, we're rolling into the summer, and all-star voting is open uh, right now, which is cool. I haven't voted yet. I, probably, I usually don't until like at the last minute. I just put one ballot down, So, but the point is there's a lot of great action around MLB, and glad to be able to bring some of those notes to the table yet again this week, and so we'll go move on now to golf and uh, our PGA Tour talk and uh, the 122nd U.S. Open at Brookline, the country club there uh, in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. It's going to be really fun this weekend. Uh, but we'll first, we'll go back to the RBC Canadian Open, which happened, of course, last weekend. Um, we saw Rory McIlroy defend his title uh, there at the RBC Canadian Open as he won on Sunday uh, with a great performance. He was paired up with Tony Finau and Justin Thomas on Sunday. They've all three shot great scores on Sunday, really low. Uh, but it was Rory McIlroy who ended up shooting an 8-under 62 to win at 19 under par, two strokes ahead of Finau, who was 664 on Sunday. And Thomas was also 664 on Sunday. So it was a really elite final grouping there uh, north of the border. And Rory McIlroy able to, to uh, you know, claim the title there uh, in Canada for the second consecutive tournament there. Of course, they had a little hiatus there 2020 and 2021 because of the pandemic. Because of COVID, they weren't able to play that tournament. He won in 2019 at 22 under par. Now he wins in 19 under par. He's got a good following there. They were chanting his name down the stretch. Uh, he was, you know, five under on the front nine, which was the lowest front nine score he's ever had in his career. Then he had three consecutive birdies to start the back nine. Had a few hiccups, but able to ultimately seal the deal and get the win. His 21st career PGA Tour victory and a win for Team TaylorMade as well. So happy for Rory. Yeah, definitely a great performance from Rory McIlroy, who does have quite the following in Canada with his recent performances at the Canadian Open, winning each of the last two tournaments there. And like you said, he was terrific on that final day, 19 under for the weekend to get the win over Finau and Thomas, and just really an amazing performance by McIlroy. He's playing really good golf right now, and really at the best time of the year when they have a bunch, there's a bunch of huge tournaments happening. And so he's definitely, you know, going to be a, a fate. He's definitely now because of that, he's the favorite coming into the U.S. Open this week, and so it's going to be really fun to see what happens there. Uh, just around at the top. 
top five here. We saw Justin Rose shoot a 60 on Sunday. I think it was tied for the lowest round of his career. Really incredible from Justin Rose on Sunday. He ended up finishing at 14 under, tied for fourth, and you know made him you know got himself a lot more money after carding a 60 there on the final day. And then Sam Burns also finished tied for fourth at 14 under. And we know how good Sam Burns has been this year, just really consistent, seemingly in the top 10 every single week. You know, really outstanding. I think he's right there near the top of the FedEx Cup points standings. And so he's been phenomenal this year and was once again good at the Canadian Open. Yeah, to go back to Rose real fast, what he did on Sunday, like you said, shooting a 60, he actually made bogey, I believe, on that on the final hole. Uh, so he all he needed to do was make par to uh, to shoot a sub 60 and shoot a 59, which is obviously one of the you know most famous scores you can get in a round of golf is to shoot sub 60. And so, uh, yeah, I think he made three eagles in the round, and I think he was like the first player since 1990 to shoot 60 with a bogey on on the 18th. So needing par just to go sub 60 and actually not be able to get it done, which is probably frustrating, but at the same time he still had an outstanding performance, like you said, um, and he was actually the became the first. European player in PGA Tour history to have multiple rounds of 60 in his career. So like you said, tied a career low round, really remarkable stuff and great for him on a Sunday. You know, he wasn't really doing a whole lot up until that point. You know, he's four undergoing a Sunday and cards at 10 under 60 and all of a sudden he's in a position where he has some momentum going to the U.S. Open this week. And so good for him there. And then if we round out the top 10, uh, we had Corey Connors, the, the native of Canada. He had a great final round as well, an 8-under 62 to finish in solo, 6th at 12-under par. And then we had three guys tied for 7th, Keith Mitchell, Chris Kirk, and Wyndham Clark all tied for 7th at 10-under par. I believe Clark uh, was in control. Uh, I think he had the 54-hole lead or was right there with Rory, and I think he had the lead after the first day. So he had a good weekend, unable to get it done on the final day, though, only 1-under one, one 69 on Sunday. And then we had a couple of uh, folks tied for 10th, Danny Lee, Shane Lowry, and Matt Fitzpatrick all tied for 10th at 9th under par so that rounds out the leaderboard there the top 10 uh, at the rbc canadian open which was a good tournament for sure a uh, really great fan turnout there and uh, good for the pga tour with all the stuff happening with the live golf and all that to have uh, some of their big faces go out there and perform really well especially that final grouping and rory mcelroy and justin thomas great respect for each other shared a good embrace uh, afterwards as well because it was a really terrific round by both those guys and tony Finau, who played really well and sunk a long putt there on the 18th and just a really good grouping and a lot of fun and a lot of momentum for the pga tour as we head into the 122nd U.S. Open, like I said, at Brookline at the Country Club, one of the oldest golf courses, I think, in the United States, uh, held the U.S. Open only three times prior, uh, with the first one being all the way back in 1913. So pretty remarkable stuff. Um, it's going to be, you know, the golf course is going to be outstanding from what I've heard uh, recently, you know, restored as of late now. And so it's going to be, uh, you know, kind of similar to U.S. Opens as a, you know, in the past to some extent, uh, you know, your approach shots are going to be really important in this uh, tournament from what I've done or from the, some of the research that I did kind of looking into this, some of the preparation uh, approach shots are going to be probably the most important that, you know, can you get your second shot to the green? Cause there's rough everywhere and the rough's going to be thick. It's going to be deep. The greens are really small and the rough around it's probably the, more of the thick rough than you've ever seen. Uh, this season is kind of what the U.S. Open has been, uh, you know, for the most part lately. And so it's going to be fun. The fairways are tight and it's going to be a really challenging golf course. I think you're probably going to see scores more around par. And, you know, I think there's probably a good chance that the winner is going to be, you know, under par by single digits, no more than that. And so it's going to be a lot of fun this weekend. Uh, they're just outside of Boston. It should be a great crowd and uh, looking forward to seeing this one. And 
you know, this is the United States Golf Association, the USGA, that, that runs the U.S. Open, right? And so this isn't the PGA Tour. And so some of those guys who had their PGA Tour membership uh, suspended or they resigned from the PGA Tour last week to go play in the Live Golf Series to be a part of that very controversial rival league that's obviously drawing a lot of headlines right now. Uh, if those guys we talked about last week, like Dustin Johnson and, and other players as well, uh, Phil Mickelson, who, you know, obviously not with the PGA Tour anymore, but, you know, they, they have the right to play here. And, they're, and so they are going to be here at the U.S. Open. So we're going to get to see some of the best players again come back and so it's going to be definitely an interesting subplot and storyline that is going to be around and so it's going to be cool to see some of the best players in the world though still on display in an outstanding field we have for the u.s open and uh we'll make our selections here we'll go with uh i don't know if you want to say anything else before we make our selections or yeah, I mean, I can talk for a little bit before i can make my selections and send it back to you or something like that i don't know if you want to make your selections first yeah, I don't know. I, just like, I was just saying, if you had any, any additional things to add. Yeah, I just wanted to say, like you said, we're going to be able to see, you know, guys like Phil Mickelson to be playing once again because this is the USGA. So we haven't seen him in a very long time. And so it'll be good to see him out there. Bryson DeChambeau will be playing this weekend, too. And he's obviously dealt with injuries and stuff, but he's also going to be part of that Live Golf Tour. And the Dustin Johnson's going to be here still, too. And so like you said, there was a number of players who are going to that Live Golf Tour and wanting to be a part of that who were suspended from the PGA Tour and, or have already, you know, left. Uh, but this, like you said, isn't the run by the PGA Tour, so they're able to come back here and play. And so I guess we'll see them here one last time before we may not see them again for a while. Uh, but it should be exciting. You know, it's going to be fun to see all these guys out there and competing on what you said is going to be a really difficult course. Uh, and so it's going to be fun to see what happens. It's going to be on NBC, uh, not CBS, which is actually pretty surprising. I mean, coming into this week, I didn't really know what channel it was going to be on. But that's why I like to go over to the PGA Tour.com and they tell you where it's going to be broadcast. It's going to be on NBC, it's going to be on Peacock, and then also USA Channel. Uh, but I'm pretty sure on that final day, it's definitely going to be on. NBC probably on Saturday and Sunday we're going to be able to watch it enjoy it there at the Country Club in Brookline Massachusetts so uh, that's all I have to say I'll let you you know do your and yeah we're going to do a winner who we think is going to win like we always do for the major championships and then we're going to do a top 10 lock someone that we think is going to finish in the top 10 we're pretty sure about that and then somebody it's a sleeper pick once again which is always a little bit you know kind of arbitrary what does a what is a sleeper pick you know what are the odds have to be for them to be a sleeper it's kind of it's kind of arbitrary but I think we both put together a pretty good one here so I'll let you start us off. Yeah, that's uh, we'll go, kind of go uh, with uh, the we'll put the odds too with it. Just kind of, I feel like we kind of used the odds a little bit. At least I did to kind of make sure that you know I think you did as well to some extent to make sure that kind of you know the favorites are usually the ones that do win. And then kind of where do you want to go with the middle ground with the top ten lock? I kind of you know it's it'd be easy to pick you know a favorite to be a top ten lock. So anyway, John Rahm was the defending champion of the U.S. Open, of course, won at Torrey Pines last June, which was a great win for him. And so we'll see. I think he's kind of flying under the radar to some extent, maybe in terms of the headlines, but he is. Still one of the favorites at 12 to 1, tied for the second best odds with Justin Thomas. And with who I think is going to win, Scotty Scheffler at 12 to 1. That's my pick for the U.S. Open. Uh, I have Scotty Scheffler winning. I think he'll become the fifth golfer ever to win the Masters and, or the fifth golfer since World War II to win uh, the Masters and the U.S. Open in the same season. If you can believe that, it hasn't happened very often. Scotty Scheffler, of course, had four better luck with it this time around. I think he'll definitely, I think he'll definitely play better this time around and will certainly be in the mix down the stretch. Uh, my winner, I'm going to go with uh, Cameron Smith time around. I think he'll Definitely, I think he'll definitely play better this time around, and we'll certainly be in the mix down the stretch. Uh, my winner, I'm going to go with uh, Cameron Smith at 14 to one. I'll definitely, I think he'll definitely play better this time around, and we'll certainly be in the mix down the stretch. Uh, my winner, I'm going to go with uh, Cameron Smith at 14 to one odds. I don't think, I think he'll definitely play better this time around, and we'll certainly be in the mix down the stretch. Uh, my winner, I'm going to go with uh, Cameron Smith at 14 to one odds. I don't think Cameron, I think he'll definitely play better this time around, and we'll certainly be in the mix down the stretch. Uh, my winner, I'm going to go with uh, Cameron Smith at 14 to 
one odds. I don't think Cameron's. I think he'll definitely play better this time around, and will certainly be in the mix down the stretch. Uh, my winner, I'm going to go with uh, Cameron Smith at 14 to one odds. I don't think Cameron Smith. I think he'll definitely play better this time around, and will certainly be in the mix down the stretch. Uh, my winner, I'm going to go with uh, Cameron Smith at 14 to one odds. I don't think Cameron Smith. Uh, my winner, I'm going to go with uh, Cameron Smith at 14 to one odds. I don't think Cameron Smith has ever won a major championship before, uh, but I certainly feel like he has that capability. He is a guy who has been in the running for a lot of majors and has been in contention seemingly every time we have a major championship. And so I think he's a guy, it's only a matter of time before he finally gets that major championship. And so I'm going to go with Cameron Smith this week at 14 to one odds, just hoping that this is the week where he can make it happen. But of course, for me, I know that I have terrible luck with picking the winner for these major championships. And seemingly every time that I do, the guy, you know, I, I think I picked, I'm pretty sure I picked uh, Brooks Kepka. I don't remember exactly I picked for the match. Masters, but I don't think they made the top 10 at the Masters. I think, I think it was Kepka. I don't think he made the cut, I think, maybe again. So. Yeah, I don't know. He was pretty bad. And then obviously I picked Scheffler for the PGA Championship. Like I just said, he didn't make the cut. And so hopefully I didn't jinx Cameron Smith. I just hope he's in contention. And if he can be in the top 20, top 10, that will that would be better for me than the past couple of guys I picked to win major championships. And so hopefully he can compete. I think he can, as long as I don't, as long as me picking him doesn't you know mess him up. Yeah, hopefully not. I think certainly has a chance because you know how great he is with the putter, right? And there's opportunity there for for Cameron Smith so we'll see as for my top 10 lock I'm gonna go with Xander Shoffley at 22 to 1 odds not that's obviously the odds for these ones or at least for the top 10 lock that's his odds to win there's no odds for whether or not a guy's gonna be a top 10 lock I don't think although that'd be an interesting proposition but um, I'm gonna go with Xander Shoffley because he's actually finished in the top 10 in five consecutive U.S. Opens and he's a guy who's been pretty consistent uh, in performing in some of these majors and he just hasn't been able to get a win in one of them yet so I feel pretty confident I hope that this isn't the year where that streak snaps but he's had five straight top tens at, at the U.S. Open, and so I'm going to try to bank on him doing it one more time, uh, making it six consecutive seasons or six six consecutive turnouts. Yeah, definitely. That's a good one. And then for my top 10 lock, Sam Burns, a 25 to 1 odds to win uh, the U.S. Open. And like I said, I already mentioned him earlier. He finished tied for fourth at the RBC Canadian Open uh, this past weekend. And then he won a tournament a few weeks back. I don't remember exactly. It was the Charles Schwab, uh, wasn't it, that he won there in Fort Worth uh, a few weeks back. And so I think he's a guy who's been playing really good all season long, has been in contention a lot of tournaments throughout the course of the year. I think he's won more than anybody on the tour so far this season. And, you know, he's like that's why he's near the top of those FedEx Cup stands. Endings. And so he's been, you know, really fantastic this year, and he's kind of, kind of been flying under the radar a little bit. And so I think that if he can just go out there and play really well, like he has all season, that he can be in contention down the stretch and can hopefully be a guy that that I think can finish in the top ten once again. Yeah, good stuff there. Certainly, a, a guy who I, he obviously win this, he could win this tournament. Honestly, he hasn't won a major yet, and you feel like it's only a matter of time before Sam Burns finally does win a major. And so at twenty-five to one odds, oh, not a bad one there. And then lastly, here for our sleeper picks, I'm going to go with Justin Rose all the way down at 60 to 1. Kind of surprised to see him this far down, but I guess, you know, he's only won one major um, in his uh, career, which I think was the U.S. Open in 2013, I believe, was his only major championship he's had on the PGA Tour. And uh, But still, again, yeah, I'm kind of banking on the whole momentum that he drew last week with that 10 under 60 on the final day at the RBC Canadian Open. And maybe he can carry that into this week uh, after that really low number. And again, it's a sleeper pick, so it's, it's hard to, you know, figure out if there's anybody down there that you truly believe is going to be able to win it. But... Uh, why not throw Justin Rose out there, a guy who's been around you know, the PGA Tour for a while now and can certainly is capable of shooting a really low number if he can be consistent through the weekend, you never know. 
Yeah, definitely a good one there. And then for my sleeper pick, I'm going to go with Billy Horschel at 40 to 1 odds uh, to win the U.S. Open. Uh, it's interesting. You went with Justin Rose at 61 odds, and I almost went with Abraham Anser, who's also at 60 to 1 odds. Those are the only two guys that are at 60 to 1. But I decided to go with Billy Horschel, and it's not like a huge sleeper because 40 to 1 isn't that bad. He's not like super low down on this list of uh, on the odds. Uh, but it's still, you know, a lot lower than some other guys. And I think he's a guy who won at the uh, Jack's Place recently at Mirafold Village at the Memorial Tournament. Uh, just recently, just a couple of weeks ago before the Canadian Open. And so I think he's certainly a guy who played really well in that tournament. I don't know if he even competed at the Canadian Open last week or if he did how well he performed, but certainly he's a guy who is a quality golfer. Like I said, 40 to 1 odds, so it's not that bad anyways. Uh, but being that he won a couple weeks ago, I think he's playing some pretty solid golf right now and go out there and compete and do well. And maybe, just maybe, he could find a way to win this thing. So, I mean, it's a sleeper pick. So, I mean, the, the odds are not great, and we're not really thinking these guys are going to win. But maybe after in the top 10, at the end of, if, at the end of the week, if either of our sleeper picks land in the top 10, I think we're going to feel pretty good about that pick because they were nearly there. Yeah, definitely. And so uh, that's pretty much all we have. But I will say, you know, I wrote an article from Kyle Porter on CBS Sports, who has a great job with them. Um, but, you know, in terms of like the, he like he put his like top ten storylines coming into this weekend. There's just so many uh, great storylines coming into this weekend, and so um, if you want to go read that, you certainly can. It was it kind of sets the stage for what should be an exciting U.S. Open here. Uh, you know, Brooks Kepka, of course, who's won the U.S. Open twice over the last four years. He tweeted out a stat Kyle Porter did at Kyle Porter CBS the other day. Um, that was uh, it said Brooks Kepka has lost to four golfers total in his last four U.S. Opens. He's beaten or tied 616 of 620 competitors at 99.4 percent and he put lol at the end because it, it was obviously it's kind of laugh out loud because uh how dominant brooks kepka has been uh, in the u.s open over the last four years you know pretty much always in the he finished top, four, four consecutive top five finishes with a couple of wins um and he's just been you know outstanding in this tournament and uh he's actually 30 to one odds so if you want to sprinkle some money on brooksy you know certainly a guy who's performed consistently here at the u.s open that would be a way to go now, one more thing that I wanted to say, too, was that in terms of that, that top 10 lock, like I could have gone with the Rory McIlroy as a top 10 lock, but I didn't feel like he was, he's the favorite to win the U.S. Open at 10 to 1 and for good reason. You know, he has, again, like I said, 21 PGA Tour wins now, uh, which he became the fourth youngest player in the last 50 years to reach that milestone. Um, so, and, but, and he's playing better than anybody uh, in, in the world right now, I think. And so he's certainly a guy who could win the tournament outright. So to, p to pick him as a top 10 lock seems a little like low-hanging fruit. So that's why I went a little bit more further down the board uh, there. But certainly, you uh, looking forward to seeing how he performs and then last thing i'll say uh, there might have been one more thing that i was going to say but now i kind of forgot what that was but uh there was one more thing that i do know i wanted to say real fast was that you know scotty shuffler my pick he's also you know he's 30 under since 2020 uh in major tournaments which is the most which is the lowest score you know cumulative uh through all the majors since the start of the 2020 season of course he got his first major win at the master earlier this year uh colin morikawa is second uh to him with the 21 under cumulative score in major tournaments since the start of 2020 so uh, Team Taylor made those top three guys should be well represented in, uh, and looking forward to seeing hopefully one of them uh, coming out on top here this weekend in the uh, Northeast, but going to be a lot of fun to watch, no doubt. Yeah, it's going to be really fun to see what happens. Certainly the third major of the year, you know, we just know that the, the past two, the Masters, the PGA Championship were really fun to watch. And so now we're going to see just a ton of great golfers be on display once again here at the U.S. Open. And we just know it's going to be a blast from Thursday through Sunday, once again, mainly on NBC. So if you want to watch it, go to NBC. It's going to be a lot of fun throughout the entire weekend. And we're certainly looking forward to every moment of it. We're going to see, who, who, you know, what kind of stars show out, you know, how well everybody plays. And it's just going to be really exciting to see how it turns out. So that's all I have to say about 
about the U.S. Open, and now you have one more thing to say. Actually, I, guess. Well, I, re- I remember what I was going to say. It was like I, I think Phil Mickelson. I think this is actually the last leg of his Grand Slam. So if somehow, some way, Phil Mickelson, we haven't seen him on the, we haven't seen him like you know, on U.S. soil, right, uh, competing in a tournament since February, I believe. If somehow, some way, Phil Mickelson at the, uh, at how, I think in his fifties, somehow wins the U.S. Open, that would be absolutely improbable, and uh, he would complete the Grand Slam, I believe. So just something to, like the very far distant opportunity there. Just wanted to point that one out real fast, but that'll be definitely interesting with those some of those guys that are now with the Live Golf who are coming back to play this week. And I think I saw Kyle Porter also mentioned that it makes these majors, you know, with the, with this Live Golf tournament now being kind of like a new rival league, it's going to make these majors even more, uh, you know, exciting because now we're going to have some of those guys from the Live Golf who get to still compete likely in these majors moving forward because as long as they're eligible, you'll get to see like everybody come together and the field's going to get even stronger now that we're not used to seeing it on a consistent basis. So that's how it's going to be moving forward. So a lot to look forward to this week and plenty of storylines and we'll see who ends up coming out on top when it's all said and done on Sunday uh, there in Massachusetts. So uh, that's all we have for our PGA Tour talk and uh, our U.S. Open discussion in the, in the world of golf. All right, so now we'll go ahead and double dupe, and we'll start with uh, Aggie Baseball, who is now going to be in the Men's College World Series. Uh, really exciting stuff there. Of course, we've been talking about Aggie Baseball for a while now, over the last couple of weeks, as we've kind of referenced them and kind of where we, you know, being our, you know, alma mater now, of course, and still being huge fans and kind of following them. And feel like there's, the expectations are really high, and the, the, you know, the opportunity they're ahead of this team and the potential is certainly there. And, uh, you know, thankfully, we're to get the job done and really happy with how they performed over the weekend in the Super Regional, uh, getting a sweep over uh, Louisville, winning 5-4 to four in a walk-off on Friday night, and then uh, winning 4-3 to three on Saturday to clinch our seventh uh you know, College World Series appearance of program history and the first in 2017. So making a trip back to Omaha here in 2022 and the first year with Jim Schlossnagel as our manager. Uh, really, you know, I don't think anybody expected this. Like, there weren't, a whole, there weren't a whole lot of expectations coming into this season after the Aggies didn't even make the SEC tournament last year and you know, all the turnover. But the transfer portal was great for us. We got a lot of great guys like Dylan Rock and Jack Moss and Troy Clonge who've been big parts of this team and the bullpen was good and able to find a way to get the outs, get some runs, and ultimately found a way to win two games. Seemingly after the Aggies have done all years to find ways to win games and it wasn't actually on the strength of the offense necessarily this time it was just total team effort really good baseball games and just doing the little things right and, and just really happy with this team. It hasn't We, had, we haven't lost the NCAA tournament. Now going back to Omaha, just really exciting. The, even the power of Pringles have been such a big part of this. Pringles finally got on board a little bit more here in the College Station Super Regional over the weekend. And so great to have them more involved now. It kind of has been a more of a funny storyline throughout the season for Aggie baseball. But, man, it's going to be so much fun to watch, uh, you know, in Omaha this weekend as well as all the teams that are in the field, which I, I can let you touch on more if you want to. Or you can just, you know, talk about Aggie baseball. I have, I have the bracket here, which we'll definitely mention. Yeah, definitely really exciting stuff. Just really can't wait uh, for Friday to see us square off against uh, Oklahoma uh, there in that first game. And so it's going to be really exciting to see what happens. You know, like you said, the Aggies have just played so well this entire season and have just achieved so much more than we ever envisioned, uh, at least as fans. You know, I'm, I'm sure in the in the clubhouse is much different. You know, once they, they, they always said, you know, listening to a lot of guys talk about the season, I've talked about the LSU series was kind of where everything turned around. And so I think from that point on, there's been, I think the guys in the clubhouse know the expectations for this team and know what they're capable of. And so maybe what they're doing may be a little bit surprising to them. But uh, at the same time, we heard Jim Schlossnagel say that nothing this team does surprises him anymore. And so this, these guys are just playing so well. And like you said, over in the Super Regional, the offense really wasn't 
that great necessarily, scoring five runs in the first game within, you know, walking it off on the Troy Clonch RBI single, and then only four runs in the second game. But the, the pitching was really solid for the most part. The bullpen was terrific, and you have to give those guys a ton of credit for really doing a great job here in the Super Regional. And of course, the offense still came up with a number of big hits and did some great things when they needed to. And it was just really awesome to see the Aggies sweep Louisville here in this Super Regional at home. A good Louisville team that, you know, came here with a bunch of talented, uh, with, with obviously a ton of talent because everybody that's, that was still left this past weekend in the Super Regionals is talented, you know, no matter what where they were seated. And Louisville was like a 12 seed. And so they were really good. Their bats were really good, but the, but the Aggie pitchers really shut them down for the most part. And it was awesome to see. It was about leaving guys on base. I know the discussion was we weren't, we weren't able to get like deep starts from Nathan Demmer or Micah Dallas, but honestly, it was only a couple of innings that got away from those two guys. Other than that, they were really quality starts from like at least what we needed to do from them. Obviously, we want to see them go deeper into the game, but uh, the bullpen didn't have to work too hard. Able to rely on those good lefties we have back there, and Jacob Polish able to seal the deal there late uh, in the game uh, two in, in the sweep. So really awesome stuff. Such a great scene at Bluebell Park there at Olsen Field, and uh, really happy for the Aggies and uh, everything that they've been able to do and. I think I saw a uh, post game, you know, Jim Schlossing said, you know, let's just keep winning. Let's go win a national title now. You know, obviously it's been a great season. We've already have so much to celebrate, but it's not over yet. Let's go win the whole darn thing. And there's no reason why we can't because I mean, the field seems very wide open as we head into Omaha uh, this weekend as it begins on June 17th and, of course, runs through the 27th um, or the 26th, depending on, of course, uh, what happens in that final uh, series to decide the national champion. But uh, the vaunted Vols, you know, the number one Tennessee volunteer, the team that was the best team in college baseball all year long. They were upset by Notre Dame on their home field, so that was really surprising to see on Sunday afternoon. So uh, the number one seed in this tournament gone. The number one seed in the NCAA tournament hasn't won the championships in 1999, Miami. So again, that's not going to happen this season. Uh, the number two seed, Stanford Cardinal, they're the highest remaining seed uh, that's still going to be playing here in uh, in this bracket. So they were able to get it done yesterday to advance uh, to the Men's College World Series in Omaha. Uh, three seed, um, Oregon State Beavers were knocked off yesterday by the 14 seed Auburn. So they're not going to be in this. So Auburn able to get in another SEC team, which is a theme we're going to see uh, here in Omaha uh, in this College World Series. Uh, the four-seed Virginia Tech Hokies also not going to be a part of this. The Aggies being the five-seed are the second highest uh, seed um, still remaining. And there's only four national seeds that are actually still left. Uh, you know, number nine seed Texas able to get in there. Uh, and then again, Auburn, the 14 seed, and Stanford, the two seeds. So the rest of it's pretty wide open. But again, like you said, if you're here in Omaha, you know they're, they're playing really good. And honestly, those those seeds, those teams that aren't seeded might be even more, just, they're just as dangerous, if not maybe a little more dangerous because they weren't, you know, national seeds, but they're playing really good right now. And that, at the end of the day, I've heard Jim Schlossnagel say before, it's not about the best team, it's who's playing the best. Um, and certainly you can make that case for just sports in general when it comes to, you know, long regular seasons. It's all about when you get down to the postseason, who's playing the best ball. And so we have Oklahoma, and they knocked off Virginia Tech, the four seed, and they pitched really well on that series for the most part, especially on that final day. So we have our, we're going to have our work cut out for us. And uh, Texas teased it up against Notre Dame uh, later that night um, against, uh, you know, so, so the first two games on Friday is our, our Aggies against Oklahoma and then the Longhorns against the Fighting Irish uh, on the nightcap and then we get those other four teams getting involved on day two as we have uh, Stanford taking on Arkansas. The Razorbacks were the number one seed last year. They didn't make it to Omaha, I don't think uh, and so now they're going to be, they're unseated this year but still a great season. They were to get it done and so they're going to be facing Stanford that first day on Saturday, and then Auburn is taking on Ole Miss in the nightcap on ESPN2 on Saturday. So those are the first four games of this Men's College World Series. Half of the field is from the SEC West, the division that the Aggies won. So uh, certainly, again, this field's pretty wide open, and the sky's the limit for our Aggies, and we're certainly hoping for uh, the best and hoping to make the season that's been so memorable and so special even better. 
Yeah, it's definitely going to be really exciting to see what happens in Omaha. And like you said, Notre Dame knocking off Tennessee. You know, 20 years ago, they knocked off Florida State, who was also the one seed in that tournament, or in that, you know, coming into the NCAA tournament that year. And so Notre Dame does it again, knocking off the number one seed. Now they're here in Omaha for the first time, I think, since 2002. And so that's really cool for them. And then Arkansas, like you said, they knocked off North Carolina, who was the 10 seed. Oklahoma knocked off Virginia Tech. Like you said, they were the four seed. And so a number of upsets here. Uh, we hated to see the Longhorns come back after losing the first game of the Super Regional against East Carolina line and they came back and won the next two games and are now making the third 38th college world series appearance which is the most all time and so and that really sucks because east carolina had never been in had never been to omaha before and really wanted to see them there but ultimately texas found a way to make it happen so now they're here with us and that's going to be exciting because we may have to play them at some point here uh, in omaha and we know that we played them earlier this year in, in austin and won that one in a very high scoring game so that's going to be fun and like you said just uh, really you know, we saw Ole Miss knock off Southern Miss, who was the 11 seed, so another upset there. And so there were like a number of upsets in the Super Regionals and even before that. And so it's going to be really fun to see what happens here. Like you said, really a wide open field because you have four national seeds in there, and then you have four teams that, that weren't seeded at all that were in the field and were able to overcome uh, the adversity and were able to not only come uh, out victorious from a regional, but then go to a Super Regional and get the job done. And so it's going to be really fun to see what happens in Omaha, like you said, starting on Friday, and then we'll see how it goes from there. So just really exciting stuff. And uh, this is definitely the most I've kept up with uh, with the NCAA tournament in college baseball, you know, leading up to Omaha. And I think you can feel the same way. And so it's going to be really exciting to see what happens. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've been able to keep up with the Aggie team all year pretty much. And then as we've gotten closer, some of the, SEC, some of the tournaments that have come around, again, college baseball, you just don't get the access necessarily. It's not as easy to find it or watch it. Not that I would much more even if I did, but I'm sure I probably would. Like, I don't know how much of a difference it would make. Uh, but certainly, you know, as the, the Aggies have been really, you know, one of the best teams in the country. And then, of course, being a national seed, you kind of I've kind of been able to while watching them. Of course, you want to know how everyone else is doing. You want to know kind of what's going on around you. And so certainly now we're able to, you know, expose to that more and be able to kind of see that and watch it. And, you know, Oklahoma is a team that won the Big 12, uh, won the Big 12 tournament, at least. And uh, they're, they're making their first trip to Omaha since 2010. So that's a team that's going to be really hungry and inspired. We're going to have to bring it against them. And Notre Dame's making their, like you said, first appearance in 20 years. Ole Miss, I believe, is making their first appearance since uh, 2014, I think. So that's uh, been a while for the Rebels as well. I think they were one of the last teams to make it in the tournament, too. I think they might have been on the bubble, and they got in, and then they haven't lost in the postseason either, I don't think, uh, yet up until this point. So I think us and Ole Miss, the only teams that haven't lost a game in the NCAA tournament. But certainly, again, at this point, if you're in Omaha, you know you're playing well, and uh, we'll see how uh, it all progresses Friday moving forward, which should be a really fun uh, tournament there at Charles Schwabville. It used to be TD Ameritrade. Now it's Charles Schwabville, I believe. So uh, either way, it's still the same location there in Omaha in the heartland, and uh, we'll see who ends up, uh, you know, kind of making their presence felt early on and puts themselves in a good position moving forward. And again, double elimination up until the final game, uh, up until the final series, I believe. And so uh, again, we'll talk about this next because it's not going to be over until, you know, uh, you know the, the final series potentially will be Saturday, Sunday, Monday, 25th to the 26th of June. So we'll have another episode next week, no matter what, to kind of kind of look at what's happened so far and where we're headed at that point. Of course, it won't be a very long segment necessarily. It never has been at all. So we've been doing this, but uh, it's not going to be over until, you know, episode 15. So a couple of episodes from now, and we'll be able to kind of put a bow on that and wrap that up the way we need to. So 
that's all we have for that segment. Uh, and then the last segment here of the double dupe segment overall, I guess that's all we have to that, that first topic. We only have one more topic here, which is going to be very brief. And we're only mentioning it because we figure we might as well. But uh, the Stanley Cup finals are official and starting tomorrow. It's the Tampa Bay Lightning making their third consecutive appearance in the Stanley Cup finals. Of course, back-to-back champions. They're trying to go for a rare three-peat, which I know you have more on here in a moment. And they'll be taking on the, Colo- uh, excuse me, the Colorado Avalanche uh, um, in the Western Conference. So the Avalanche, uh, terrific season, one of the best offenses as I've, uh, you know, as we, a little bit of preparation, and I know a little bit, uh, not a lot. I would say I know very little about the NHL, mainly the players, but the teams I know more of. But I know the, you know, having watched a little bit, the Avalanche have a really good offense. And so this, and the Lightning, from what I've heard, have a really good goalkeeper, right? A little bit of a, a really good goalie, rather. Again, what do I know? I'm not a hockey guy, but at the same time, I know that they have a really good goalie because the Panthers just did not score at all hardly against them. So I think it's going to be a really good series, and I might watch more of it than I ever have before in terms of the game of hockey itself. But I think it'll be entertaining. The Lightning, again, back-to-back champions of the back-to-back Stanley Cup Finals champions. They've won three Stanley Cups in their franchise history. Uh, one also back in 2004, I believe, and then the uh, Colorado Avalanche have only have won two uh, Stanley Cup Finals in their uh, franchise history. One in 1996, and then one back in 2001, and that uh, 2001 championship was the last time they were actually in the Stanley Cup Finals. So this is the first time they've been on this stage in two decades, so it shapes up to be what should be a, a interesting Stanley Cup Finals. And like, I was going to say fun, but I don't know how much we'll watch but it might be entertaining and I might watch I'm sure it's gonna be entertaining if you're a hockey fan if you're not a hockey fan like me or you it might be kind of interesting definitely I think it'll be something to keep an eye on even though we don't really keep with hockey at all it's not a sport that I know anything about really but when you get to the finals here it's certainly something that maybe you'll just tune in a little bit and see how it's going and uh, the Lightning are trying to become only the sixth team ever to win three or more championships in a row Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs have done it twice Uh, the Montreal Canadiens have done it twice as well and interestingly enough when the Canadiens did it they won five in a row in the late 50s and then four in a row in the late 70s and then the Islanders are the other team uh, that has had a, a streak of three or more championships. They won four straight Stanley Cup finals in the early 80s. And so five times we've seen a team uh, win three or more Stanley Cup finals in a row. Uh, but I think it's interesting that, you know, it's only three teams and just two of those teams have done it twice in two different spans. And so the Lightning are trying to do something that we haven't seen in a very long time, though, because the last time we saw it was with the Islanders from 1980 to 1983. And so we have not seen it happen in a very long time in the sport of hockey. And honestly, we don't see a lot of three-peats in any major sports in general. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see if the Lightning can make it happen, if they can once again hoist the Stanley Cup for a third consecutive season. But I know for me, I'm going to be rooting for the Avalanche, even though you know I don't really have any against the Lightning. I just think it'd be cool to see somebody else win. And I have, to, I have a feeling that you know maybe there's a lot of hockey fans out there who feel the same way that aren't fans of either team. But if they had to root for somebody, they're probably going to be rooting for the Avalanche just so they can see somebody else win and not really want to see the Lightning win yet another Stanley Cup final. Uh, and so you know we'll see what happens in this series. Obviously, like you said, I'm not really sure how much I'm going to watch of it, but certainly because it's the Stanley Cup Finals, I may keep up with it a little bit more, and I'll definitely know what's happening. Uh, but if I, and like I said, if I had to root for somebody, I'd be rooting for the Avalanche. But if the Lightning do get it done, they certainly would be making some history, and that would be a cool thing to see. Yeah, I would probably flip the TV on to it or something else on, just kind of have it on, or at least get that third period if it's a good game or something. Maybe we have a overtime period, which is always fun to watch because you know the next goal wins it, and so that would be entertaining for sure to see if that ends up being the case. But yeah, I'll be rooting for the Avalanche too because the Lightning have knocked off the Panthers, I think, two straight years in route to eventually winning the championship. Which I guess yeah, I could root for the Lightning and be like, hey, we end up. I say we, but I because if I was a fan of any team, it would be the Panthers, even though I'm very very fair weather fan because I don't really watch it all. But uh, you know, I, I root for the Panthers 
Panthers, if you ask me. And so I would say that, you know, they knocked out the Panthers last two years. So at least uh, I know that the team that beat the Panthers will be the eventual champion again for the third straight year. But it would be nice to see the Avalanche, uh, you know, make it. And it would be nice to see, the, you know, a new team, right, uh, you know, hoist the Stanley Cup and, and take home that hardware. And then also the fact that um, I was going to say, well, I totally forgot what I was going to say. Totally. <laughs> Yeah, God dang it, I totally forgot what I was going to say. But, yeah, um, it, should be, it should be entertaining, uh, and we'll see what happens. You know, the Avalanche, like you said, I mean, I, like I said earlier, they haven't won in 20 years. So if I had to root for a team, I'd go with Colorado, but we'll see what happens there. And so ultimately that's – oh, that's what I was going to say, three-peats. You mentioned it, right, the three-peats. You don't see that very often. I don't think it's ever happened in the NFL, the Super Bowl. I don't think we've ever seen, you know, a team win the Super Bowl three years in a row. And and uh, MLB we haven't seen since the Yankees, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, they, they might be on the track to win the whole darn thing this year. And then oh, with the NBA, of course, right, the, Warriors, right, the Warriors did they won three and a four, didn't they? Yeah, I think it was three and a four. So I don't actually know when the last time it happened in the NBA. Um, but uh, the Warriors, at least for their sake, trying to make it four the last eight seasons right now. So both those series getting close, both those leagues getting close to crowning champions, and we felt like we'd recognize the NHL for a moment. So that's all we have. We'll go ahead and uh, wrap this thing up. Yeah, we'll go ahead and close it up here. Uh, another episode that went over an hour, and maybe it was a little bit longer than we thought, but certainly not even close to as long as last week, which is a good thing, and obviously not surprising considering what happened last week. But that is going to do it for us here on this episode of the Double Dupe Sports Podcast. So thank you all for for uh, thank you all for listening to this episode. If you uh, listen to the whole thing, we certainly appreciate that. As you as we went through a number of topics here once again, but even if you listen to parts of it, uh, we certainly appreciate anything, uh, any listening that you did, any time you spent listening to us talk about sports we appreciate that uh, of you guys and from you guys uh, also please subscribe rate and review on spotify and, or apple podcasts or wherever else listen to our podcast certainly uh, we appreciate it whenever you guys do that for us and so if you could do that we, we would appreciate that so please do that as well and then lastly uh, also just like always please follow us on social media you can follow me on twitter at doopy underscore austin and on instagram at au underscore doopy 10 uh, once again uh, you know if you don't follow me there yet please do because anything podcast related is going to be on those handles for me and it's going to be on tyler's handles too and he'll plug his in just a moment one last time so please follow us on social media and as i finish up once again looking forward to everything we have in sports like tyler said at the beginning of this episode we do have a very exciting week of sports coming up with the rest of this week and then into the weekend and then even going forward because the sports world never stops and that's a great thing that we always have so much great action happening we have the nba finals that could be over on thursday or could be over on sunday uh depending on how things go but i'm excited to see how that uh series finishes up and see who is going to uh you know ultimately win the larry o'brien trophy this season and whether it'll be the celtics coming back from down 3-2 or if the warriors can finish it off so that's gonna be fun to watch we have mlb rolling along just like always here in the middle of june we have the golf with with, uh, the u.s open here this weekend which is gonna be so exciting to see what happens there at the country club at Brookline. And so that's going to be really fun to see what happens there. That's going to be a ton of, there's going to be a ton of excitement at the U S open. And then of course the men's college world series starting here on Friday, getting underway in Omaha and also the Stanley cup finals, which you mentioned at the end that I may tune into a little bit as it, as it progresses here in June. And so there's just a lot of different things uh, that you can look forward to here. Just a lot of different things that can kind of, uh, you know, appease your appetite. You know, it's just a bunch of great sports action happening right now this week and into the weekend and into next week as well. And so it's going to be a fun, a bunch of fun to watch all of this stuff. I'm looking forward to keeping up with it and watching it. And I hope you guys are too. And I'm also looking forward to speaking with you all again next week, probably on Tuesday once again, which means the episode will come out on Wednesday uh, for you guys here on the Double Dupe Sports Podcast.
podcast. Yeah, funny you went to the appetite thing. I was thinking the same exact thing. You have a lot of different options. I was going to say to whet your appetite. So instead of a peas, I was going to go to whet your appetite. But yeah, definitely a lot of opportunity uh, moving forward to be excited uh, about what's going on in the sports world with all the different things we talked about. Episode probably ran a little bit longer than we thought. It's going to be within 75 minutes, though. And, uh, you know, I think I think we, we wouldn't have a lot of content, but it's like we had a number of different topics. And anytime you have multiple segments or topics, it makes it a little longer because we always want to make sure we elaborate on them enough. And we kind of get a little long-winded almost making, you know, kind of just we'll probably say more than we need to maybe. And so it gets a little bit uh, out of our hands there a little bit. But for the most part, we're going to hone it down and in particular a pretty good episode here. I know it wasn't, at least me personally, feeling like we just got done with this near 75-minute episode and felt like I wasn't perfectly crisp. And maybe the episode episode was a little choppy at times. We even had some technical difficulties behind the scenes here we had to work through, but uh, it wasn't, you know, you know, from start to finish wasn't the cleanest episode I've ever had before. Or maybe you, I don't know how you feel about it, but I felt it was a little choppy at times, but you just kind of roll with it and uh, hope you guys enjoyed the content we brought to the table today. And next week, you should have a lot of great content again. Uh, like I mentioned in the outset or earlier in the episode, we'll be able to recap the NBA Finals officially no matter what happens uh, next week. So, And then we'll be able to look at the NBA Draft for a brief moment as we get closer to you know kind of rounding out all of our basketball content for, for this season. And then the MLB, like you mentioned, keeps rolling along. And we'll be excited to see what kind of new notes, uh, what kind of news and notes we get because every week is a different week for news and notes. There's always great things that happen, players of the week and so on and so forth. And whatever kind of big performances we get to see and, and how many people, how many players continue to perform at a high level. And then, again, we made our picks for the U.S. Open with our picks to win, our top ten locks and our sleepers. We'll see if any. We'll see if we get any of those right. I feel like the, if we're gonna get any of them right, the top ten lock will be the easiest one, obviously, because they don't have to win. It's always really hard to pick a golf tournament. You have a bunch of great guys out there competing, and uh, I mean, any one of them could win if, uh, if they're playing uh, as best as they want to. And so, at the end of the day, who makes the most shots? Who makes you know? I think strokes gain approach is what I've heard a lot. Is, you know, making those second shots, make, hitting the green on those second shots, and you know, avoiding the rough, and, and you know, keeping the ball in those tight fairways is gonna be the most important thing in this tournament so we'll see who can play the course the best and end up getting it done when it's all said and done and again college baseball certainly has a lot of action now that we are at Omaha can't wait to watch the Aggies there it's gonna be so much fun and uh, again the Stanley Cup Finals as you mentioned uh, we'll see about that uh, we'll see how much we watch of that but a lot of great content and next week we'll be able to you know recap some of it continue to preview some of it maybe just talk about what's happened and then look forward to what's going to happen moving forward but certainly as you mentioned no shortage in the sports world right now and that's why we love it so much always action at our disposal and we get to you know uh, watch all of it and enjoy all of it and we'll We'll get to talk about it again next week. And hope you guys join us next week right here on the Double Deep Sports Podcast.